But as you're having your seat, uh, I would suggest again to those of you that are uh, members here at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, you consider yourself young and in good health. Uh, if you would help us out by parking over at the far end of the Franklin Center or the library parking lot or even down at the farmer's market, we know that there are parking issues here. We know there are space issues here. Uh, we definitely get that. And by the way, um, maybe you can make a new friend. I mean, when you're parked like literally on top of them or when you rub elbows with someone that you literally do not know. But that would really help us out. And, you know, as, as the Lord... Um, continues to, to work among us. There's a possibility of a, of a second service, and in all honesty, we probably should have gone to that already some time ago, um, but we haven't yet, so we appreciate your patience with the uh, parking issues and the space issues. But I think in church life, there's probably bigger, worse problems that we could have. Just throwing that out there uh, as well. So, so that would be awesome if you could help us out with that. Little promo on next week. Let me, let me give you a an introduction on what we're going to talk about next week. Here's, here's the topics. Parenting and family. What is a strategy for parents to show our children God's way instead of the world's way? How do we properly blend a family when each spouse has a child from a previous relationship? What is a strategy for convincing a spouse to come to church? So next Sunday, I will not be preaching. Dr. David Wheeler will be bringing the heat. And if you were here last night, there are, there are some, some pagans among us who call themselves Christians. And what we've noticed is that whenever Jeff is not going to be preaching, I don't know why, Lee. I have no idea. But you guys get me every week. When we see we've got a special guest speaker coming, a lot of times our, our attendance is a little bit lighter. So be here next week. If you were here last, last what was it? Last September, David Wheeler gave our fall jumpstart event on the family. It was an amazing, amazing sermon. I've never seen more people respond during the invitation since I've been at Rocky Mount Baptist Church than last September when David Wheeler was here. Absolutely phenomenal speaker, man of God. And I was like, bro, I, well, I don't call him bro. I call him Dr. Wheeler. Scratch that. Scratch that from the podcast. All right, but Dr. Wheeler, I said, I've been married just a little over a year. We've, we have a kid on the way, but like this is some heavy duty, like in the trenches, marriage and family and children and stuff. Could you possibly break free from your church and come give us a special message? He said, I'll see what I can do. And so he's going to be here super excited about that. So again, these issues, um, parents showing children God's way instead of the world's way. How do we properly blend a family when both each spouse has a child from a previous relationship. And then what is a, I love, I love whoever submitted this question because you know they're a detailed person. Notice, what is a strategy for convincing a spouse to come to church? So in other words, they're like, give me the blueprint and let's put him or her in the crosshairs of the gospel gun and let's pull the trigger for the glory of God. Give me a strategy. Dr. Wheeler will be preaching on those topics next week. But as far as today, we're going to be talking about judgment. All right, so here we go. We're going to address the big topic, but there are several other questions that were given along these lines, so we'll try to do a quick fire addressing of these issues and point you to some things that we've already addressed in the past that would hopefully help you. Question number one, is there a perfect Christian? Answer, no. Reference, Romans chapter 7. Go read it. The Apostle Paul says that what I want to do, I don't always do, and the things that I hate to do, 
I often find myself end up doing those things that I know are wrong and that I don't even want to do. So if the Apostle Paul still had issues with the sin, it means that it's probably safe to say that there is not um, a biblical teaching of what's called Christian perfectionism. In other words, you and I will never get to the point in this life to where we no longer sin. That we will always need the grace of God from point A all the way to Z. Second question. Is there biblical evidence for eternal security? In other words, does the Bible teach that once you get saved, that you stay saved no matter what? The answer to this is absolutely the Bible teaches once saved, always saved. Absolutely the Bible teaches eternal security. And if you go on our website, we have all of the messages we've given here in the last five plus years tagged by topic. You can go on there and look up eternal security. We've already addressed that in detail two or three times, but I want to give a suggestion for you to think about. Because often we, some of us come from church backgrounds um, to where this is not taught. And what is presented is, well, if you tell people that once they get saved, they'll stay saved, then they're going to go out and they're going to break bad. I mean, they're going to bust hell wide open. They're, they're going to be like, well, bro, I'm, like if I'm in, then I can do whatever the heck I want to do. And what I want to do is not what I should do, but I'm in. So I get the best of both worlds. Party hardy. And then I get to go to heaven when I die. Man, that's awesome. Here's, here's something to think about when we talk about can you lose your salvation or not? What is salvation? What is being born again? To use the big Bible word, what is regeneration? That regeneration, salvation, is something that God does inside of us. When we come to that place where we see our need for God and we repent and turn to Jesus Christ, we get saved. We become a Christian, a follower of Christ. But that saved salvation, regeneration thing is not just a decision that we make. A lot of churches teach that. In other words, becoming a Christian is not us just deciding one day, you know what, I want to be in. Because if we were left to our own desires outside of God working our life, guess what? I would never even want to be saved. We want to be in control of our lives. I won't even ask for an amen. Like we're all good at personal autonomy. In other words, there's nothing in us that we could ever even think to imagine that would lead us to say, you know what? What I'm going to do on Saturday morning, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to give everything that I am, that I have, that I have to God. I'm going to just say, you know what? I want to get, no, we don't think that way. So salvation is not only a gift of God, but it's what God does to us. Got it? Salvation is not just us choosing to get in. Salvation is a supernatural act of God. He doesn't violate our personal autonomy, but what God does is he, he saves us. He saves us. So in other words, if God's the one who does the heart change, we can't unchange what God has already done. And along with that, if we've actually had a genuine heart change, we are surely not going to say, well, man, Jesus, Son of God, came to live in this earth, lived a rough life, mistreated, abused, misunderstood, then he was tortured to death. That's the Son of God, and he saved me, but based on that, I'm going to get the excuse to go out and live against him? That's a sign that you've never been saved. You see the difference? 
If someone's truly been saved, they've had a heart change, a completely reoriented worldview that's no longer about themselves, but it's about God and his glory and loving people so that they'll see that God is real. That's evidence of a genuine salvation. So for people who say, well, I've been saved, but since I've been saved, I can do whatever I want, they've never been saved. Because they're try- if they were, I mean, they, were, they would be treading on the blood of Jesus Christ. When you get saved, oh man, it's so beautiful because everything changes. Third question, and we're not even to the sermon yet. Are there sins that are unforgivable? You guys ask questions. Awesome. I love it. Are there sins that are unforgivable that will keep you out of heaven? Again, are there sins that are unforgivable that will keep you out of heaven? The only sin that Jesus notes that is in that category is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And you remember back around in 2007, 2006, 2008, there was something going around on YouTube called the Blasphemy Challenge, to where most of them are young people. They would uh, video themselves and say, I, and this is my name, this is where I live, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You can go look that up on, on YouTube right now. But that's not even what Jesus was talking about. The background for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be back in Matthew, if you're going to take notes, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. In the beginning of verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you that any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. What was Jesus talking about? Well, there was a man that was born blind. Jesus heals the man. And guess what the Pharisees do? They knew that Jesus healed the man because of God's power. I mean, they knew the Old Testament through and through. They knew demonic power when they saw it, and they surely knew the power of the one true God. But because they didn't want to give up control of their religious power, because they didn't want people to see that Jesus had something that they didn't have, guess what they did? They got in their huddle and said, how can we explain this away so that people won't follow this lowly Jewish carpenter from Nazareth? And they said, I know, let's say that Jesus did it by the work of Satan and demons. So here is the unpardonable sin. The Pharisees knew through and through that they had seen a supernatural miracle from the God of the universe. But in order, again, to maintain their pride and their religious control, they attributed the work of God, the Spirit, to Satan and the demons. That is the unpardonable sin. And some, while we're on it, some people say, well, well I know someone in my, in my family or a friend who has committed suicide, and, um, and is that the unpardonable sin? That comes from medieval period of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there is no verse that you will find ever in the Bible that says something is the unpardonable sin other than Jesus. So to say that suicide is, is adding to the Bible. And I'm just going to put this out there. I don't want to add teachings to the Bible. Because whenever we add teachings to the Bible, by logic, we subtract the teachings that are already there. So suicide is not the unpardonable sin. It is not God's perfect will for anyone to take their own life. But that's not what the scripture teaches in regards to the unpardonable sin. Question four, then we'll jump into Romans 8. 
Will we be judged negatively even though we try but are not perfect Christians? That's where we're going to camp out the rest of the time. Isn't that a good question? Somebody needs to just get a high five. Whoever submitted this question. Again, will we be judged negatively even though we try but we are not perfect Christians? If you have your Bibles, go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the very first verse, which says, There is therefore now, somebody help me out, no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let's think about this verse. What is there for those who are in Christ Jesus? No condemnation. So it would follow that those who are not in Christ Jesus should be expecting what? Condemnation. You say, well, what exactly is condemnation? We're going to break that down, but here's what we want to get across from these passages that we'll look at this morning, is that the price of our salvation and the price of our redemption should motivate you and I not to waste our lives. That the fact that we have, if you've been truly born again and truly saved, the fact that we have been redeemed and transformed and saved by Jesus Christ who gave all of himself for us, that should motivate us not to waste our life. So here's some, here's some facts as we'll try to, to break that down, and they'll help us understand what the scripture is going for. Here's some preliminary facts on condemnation, uh, judgment, and those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who have been saved, to those who are following Christ. So what is condemnation? Well, condemnation, if you could, if you could imagine it, it would be the pronouncement or the, the dropping the hammer on guilt, uh, the punishment, and the penalty. And this is something that Christ has completely and totally absorbed on the cross for those who will be saved. It's almost like condemnation would be every dirty, sordid, embarrassing thing that we've ever done tied up in this huge imaginable I mean just a massive net and then we were handcuffed to it and dropped off the side of an ocean liner condemnation means that we get what we have coming condemnation means that there's no intersection of grace and mercy it means that we simply get what we deserve Yesterday, we, we went down to North Carolina, and we happened to pull off on an accident. It is the sovereignty of God. We're just going to grab something to eat, and lo and behold, there was a Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> Beautiful establishment pride of the free market of the world right there. And that's one of those moments you just reach up and you say, thank you, Jesus. And so between yesterday afternoon and this morning, I've eaten nine Krispy Kreme donuts, and I am ready to preach. Come on. But I'll tell you what. The repercussions, which Fred I won't go into, of doing that to oneself, I'm receiving condemnation. I, I'm receiving what I have coming because of what I did. That's kind of a, a greasy, sugary, uh, glucose-inducing example to illustrate something that's actually, honestly, if we just sat down around a table and talked about it, it's not funny at all. I mean, when the scripture talks about condemnation, it literally means everything that we've ever done is there on judgment day. And since we can't get into heaven by being good people, 
Since there's nothing that we could ever do, get together the think tank and say, let's, let's, let's write some books about how to be better people. Let's talk about how to uh, readjust that pendulum uh, to, 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 to somehow cancel out the bad we've done years ago, back in college and high school and in the 20s and 30s. That's not the way it works. Because the Bible tells us that our best stuff, all of our righteousness, even if that was possible, is like filthy rags in God's sight. So, Switching from donuts to eternity, if we're rational thinking people and we can conclude reasonably that there is powerful existence for the powerful arguments and evidence for the existence of God, and if we actually take the scripture seriously and we look at it, there are extremely rational reasons for believing in the truth of the Bible. And if all of this stuff is true, like in the actual real world, and we can't make ourselves be better people and we can't save ourselves, then in a rational person's mind who's actually thinking and not emoting, thinking, it should cause us to be absolutely terrified. Put that out there. Because there, there are reference after reference after reference in the Bible about the fear of God. We don't talk about that a lot in church today, but the point is, is that if God is real, if the scripture is true, and judgment is coming, and we have not run to Christ, if he has not saved us and forgiven us and cleansed us of our sins, then we have condemnation to look forward to. But the beautiful teaching of Romans chapter 8 is that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And let me just make a note here this no condemnation, like how do you go from condemnation to having no condemnation that has nothing to do with us at all? Nothing. Going from receiving the full weight of our sin, judgment, hell for all eternity, to going to receiving the grace of God, being filled with his spirit, being given purpose and hope in this life and heaven to look forward to and to be with Christ and be with all the other believers, all of that is a free gift. So when we see no condemnation, Jeff is nowhere in there except for the condemnation part that was forgiven by Christ. Amen? Like it all comes from him. So when we look at our future reality, if we've been saved, it should cause us not to look even, well, once when I was 14, I prayed the prayer. I didn't know. We look to Christ and what he has done on our behalf. So here's the question then. If there is no condemnation for Christ followers, for those who've been saved, then does their faithfulness to Christ really even matter? This goes back to our once saved, always saved discussion. Listen, absolutely, absolutely our faithfulness to God matters. So we will not receive condemnation we will not be at, um, we'll, we'll just talk about this. There's two different judgments talked about in the Bible. There's the great white throne judgment, if you want to take notes. It's in Revelation chapter 20. That is the final roll call of everything. That's where every person who has never been saved will stand before God. And it says, and the books were opened. Those books contain what those people had done. So in other words, capital G, capital T, great white throne, all the capitals, great white throne judgment. That is the final judgment day according to the Bible in which all of the things that a person 
who has never repented and placed their faith in Christ, all of the stuff that even we may have forgotten about will be broadcast on that day. Why would God do that? Because throughout the pages of the Bible, God is very serious about justice. By the way, that's the reason why Jesus died is because Jesus believed that a penalty had to be paid. We tracking? He actually gave himself to die so that justice could be done. Only he stood in our place. So there's the great white throne judgment that none of us want to be at that will forever and eternally justify God's condemnation of sinners to hell. In other words, at the end of that great white throne judgment, no one in any part of the universe, heaven, hell, will be able to give one reasonable argument to say, God, you did somebody wrong. Because the books will be open. That's not a judgment where believers will be at. But the Bible does say, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, I would encourage you to mark that in your Bibles. You can Read that in detail later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Here's what the Bible says about believers. For we, speaking to believers, Christ followers, those who have been saved, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there's something in the Bible called the judgment seat of Christ. Again, the great white throne judgment is for those who are unsaved. But for those who have been saved, the judgment seat of Christ will be an evaluation of how we've used our time and our talents and our treasure uh, for Jesus Christ that he has loaned to us. And there are many verses in the Bible which speak to what we do with Jesus really does matter. Again, if a believer sins after he or she is saved, it doesn't mean they lose their salvation. What it means is that they lose impact for the glory of God. And I pray in this next section that those of us who claim to be followers of Christ would just tune in to what the Bible's saying and that we would evaluate what we do, how we live, how we spend, how we speak uh, by the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Let's, let's go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, and we'll read verses 10 through 15. And this gives us the clearest picture in the New Testament about what the judgment seat of Christ will be. Verse 10, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master, master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. This is the Apostle Paul explaining his ministry and his church planning. Notice what he says, Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Time out right there. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that the foundation of our faith, the reason why we will be at the judgment seat of Christ as opposed to the great white throne judgment is because of Jesus Christ because salvation has been offered and received as a free gift. He says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for that capital D, day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire 
and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What the Bible is communicating here is that our unfaithfulness to Christ once we've been saved, or even doing quote-unquote right things and and our motive is completely jacked up, that is to be, be compared to wood, hay, and stubble. And the evaluation that God will give to each person who's been saved will be compared to fire. And I enjoy burning things. I'm so thankful that we have a fireplace. For those of you who have the spiritual gift of burning things, you're you're tracking with me. But whenever you put in wood, hay, and stubble, it doesn't take long before it's gone. And I've never done this because I don't have it. But I've been told that if you take gold or silver and put it into a furnace and you heat it up, what happens is that the dross, all of the impurities from that metal slowly seep out. And if you heat it up enough, you'll be left with pure gold or pure silver. What the Bible is saying is that there will be a day in which Christ will examine us as far as our faithfulness to him. Now, some may say, oh, now, Jeff, that actually sounds like purgatory. That we were talking about the fire. But here, this is a fundamental misunderstanding to use this passage to believe in purgatory. Um, Supposedly, according to medieval Roman Catholic theology, purgatory begins at a person's death to where this passage says that it will be on that capital D day, the judgment seat of Christ. And the, the, the fire that Paul is talking about is to try our works, okay? Our faithfulness. Our obedience to Christ, whereas purgatory, actually, uh, the fire is on the person. One commentary says that Paul's fire causes, quote, loss to the sufferers. But in Roman Catholic theology, purgatory uh, actually produces great gain, namely getting out of purgatory and going into heaven. So this, is, this passage is not talking about purgatory since that is not found in the Scripture. But notice how it describes faithfulness to God. It describes faithfulness to God as gold and silver and precious stones that can withstand fire. In other words, it's saying that faithfulness to Christ and obedience to Him, even when it's hard, that produces great, lasting reward. There's one man that I talked to years ago, an older gentleman in another state, and he says, I'm serving Jesus because on that day, I want my crowns. I was like, well, just go to a dentist. Just go to a dentist. I mean, he was just getting fired. I want my crowns. And let me just be honest. Like, I'm an American uh, born and bred here in the U.S. And I've never really had a desire in my life to, to be known as the guy who wears a crown. Okay? Except for Burger King. We remember that as a little kid, right, wearing the Burger King crown. Like, this is something that's honestly lost and meaning uh, for those of us who are Americans because we don't view royalty as a good thing. Like, if some of you were referred to as Sir so-and-so, that would be the point of the joke's beginning. In many places, many areas of the world, in fact, the first century, it was all about royalty. So the fact that the first century hearers would have heard um, that these are, these are beautiful rewards given, it would translate to honor. And some people say, now, Jeff, Since we can't get saved by doing good works, does that mean that they don't have any value after we get saved? That's not true at all. 
our works, our obedience to God has great value after we get saved. Not to keep us saved, but to glorify God. If you want to write down this note, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says that we were created in God's image to be his workmanship. In other words, God has created us to do great things for him. It's like God is, when he saves us, says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll give you my spirit to enable you to be fruitful, to enable you to be obedient, to enable you to do what you'd never be able to do. And here's the thing. Some of us have a difficult time with the Bible when it talks about God rewarding our obedience. Because, you know, some of us, we don't even know how to handle that. Those of you who've watched Andy Griffith, Barney Fife, you ever see when Andy affirms Barney? Oh, shucks, Ange. He doesn't know how to handle it. And many people today, even in church who've been saved, they bring with them an idea that there's still some cloud of condemnation there. Listen, when you get saved, condemnation goes bye-bye. It's done. So here's the question. Why would God arrange it all in such a way that, now this is, this is interesting stuff to me, that you get saved by something that you could have never worked to get. But then once you get saved, God ultimately rewards you for your obedience to Him. Now, why would God reward us for our obedience and our faithfulness? Because He's a good Father. Why, why, why did, I mean, why does a father, a good father, give his children good things above and beyond basic clothes, basic necessities, if he's able to financially? Because He's a loving Father. Because He loves His children in the same way when we look at the judgment seat of Christ, it has nothing to do with condemnation. It has everything to do with God on that final day saying, I gave you a new heart. I'm gonna, I gave you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, supercharged conscience. I surround you with people who love me. They've got issues too, but I'm still working on them. And I'm going to enable you in these few years that you have left in a thing called life to be faithful to me. And on that day, things that have been done for God, and they've been done for Him, and even to say, you know what, I can't wait for those rewards one day. It is to hear those words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Again, often in, in, in Christian teaching, we, we overlap things that don't need to be overlapped. Again, we don't get saved by being faithful. We get saved based upon the grace of God. But once he saves us, he enables us to do things for him and for our families and for people that may be, uh, they, they, they lack health, they lack influence, they lack money, and doing those things so that they are like gold and silver. Let me give you a couple of verses here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. I can't, it's so awesome to hear that, that question that was submitted by one of the students about how do you share the gospel at school. Listen, students, when you are, when you are maligned and when you're talked bad about because of your faith with Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, there is great reward. Matthew chapter 10, verses 41 through 42. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a, prophet, a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives these little ones 
a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, check this out, and that He rewards those who seek Him. You see, a lot of us are still fearing condemnation when condemnation is no longer in the picture. You see, here's the beautiful part of the gospel, that when you get saved and when you are faithful to Jesus Christ, not only does the glory go to him, not only does he enable you to break the chains of whether it's addiction or the past baggage, but he is going to reward you for what he enabled you to do in the first place. That's crazy. That's like, that's like give the token and then give the Chuck E. Cheese tickets and then just open up the entire thing. That's called grace upon top of grace upon top of grace upon top of grace. You say, well, okay, now, Jeff, what exactly are these rewards? Well, most biblical scholars who study in, in the Greek, that's, that's what they do for their life work, they say that probably what Jesus seems to be referring to here is that the rewards are responsibilities or roles and joy with Christ in heaven. You could say that it's a, a lessening of regret in heaven. So what is the judgment seat going to be like? Erwin Lutzer, and this is in your notes, he, he gives several aspects of what is it going to be like, and this is called the Bema seat judgment. It's the evaluation time for how we've used what God has given us since we've been saved. We will be judged fairly. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 says it's the judgment seat of Christ, which means it will be done right. You see, nothing will be hidden from God. So this is not an evaluation of how he lived before Jesus because all of that was taken away when the condemnation was taken away when we got saved. But what the judgment seat of Christ is, is it's an evaluation of our faithfulness with what we have been given since we've been saved. We'll be judged individually and we will be judged thoroughly. Now, here's the negative. The negative is that nothing will be hidden. If you can think about it this way, have you ever known people in church or people who call, they, they, let's say they're genuinely Christians and they've had a falling out of sorts? Ever seen that? And then one of them passes away and they go to be with the Lord. If we're thinking about this detailed, the judgment seat of Christ would be necessary to make heaven truly heaven. Because on that day, all of the past disagreements I've had with people, and we're both saved, we both love Jesus, but there's a falling out of sorts. And when the light ray of God, and when his spotlight shines upon me and past people I've had disagreement with, there will be absolute, complete, total change. Everything will be brought out into the light. It will be the dealing with all of the loose ends that have been left open here on earth. And for a true believer, John Murray said this. He said, believers will want such a judgment to magnify the salvation of Christ. 
It will be a time where we were once again reminded of how much we need Jesus. It's an evaluation of what we've used for Jesus Christ. So that's the negative. But the positive here is that Christ isn't obligated to give us anything, but he graciously has chosen to reward our faithfulness. Amen? It means that all of those times, even down to Jesus saying a cup of water, and most of us wouldn't think that a cup of water is a world-changing event. Like, post that on Facebook, bro. Like, let that rip with a selfie. Here's me and my cup of water. But Jesus notes that. So here's the thing. In God's eyes, often big things are small things, and small things are big things. And he says that your reward shall be great. It will be an amazing thing on that day, and it will be on that day that we will have everything brought out, and we'll be reminded that we are according to the New Testament. If you're, if you're new to church, I just hope to break this down for you. According to the Bible, we're slaves of Christ or we're slaves to sin. Before we get saved, the book of Romans is clear that we are slaves to sin. That could be sexual sin. It could be thinking that we're better or smarter than other people. It could be thinking, you know, I, I want to be um, on the top level to get things for myself and to have materialism. I, I want to be that guy with a ton of degrees or whatever it is. Or I want to be the best looking person. We're slaves to sin, but according to the Bible, when we get saved, we become slaves to Christ. See, now Jeff, I thought there was freedom in Christ. Listen, when you are the slave of Christ, he commands you to do everything that is beneficial to you. When we are slaves to Christ, he gives us a rule. He gives us a, a righteous rule to say, follow me. And it is everything that benefits us. It keeps us away from self-destructive habits. But ultimately, it brings glory to him. There's one theologian named Malcolm Yarnell. And he says, I have met Christians and Muslim theologians who are mad because God was more love than they wanted. And he's referencing the book of Jonah, and he says, but Jewish Jonah learned better. You know, for some of us, we see, I wish that God would just give that righteous judgment to those people who did me wrong and who deserve it. If God did that, then where would we be? But the judgment seat of Christ is a time that, let's say, God gives us the ability to be faithful. Let's say, let's say you grew up in a home where mom and dad never even talked about this stuff, and it was... It was a dysfunctional situation. Even if they paid their bills, there was no love, there was no grace, there was no, there was no encouragement. Like you never knew if you were doing okay. And all of that happened. You say, well, Jeff, I, I just tried to be faithful to God through that and, and model my family different. And, but I don't know what to do sometimes. Listen, even the small things of faithfulness on that day, it will reveal. We don't know exactly what those rewards will do do and be and mean, but we know that it will be a testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? It will be a testimony once again to say, I'm surprised I had any gold in that. Like, this is me. And if that's the case, God could do amazing things through your life. Because the Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if you're threatened by this, you say, Jeff, often I think of condemnation. Listen, if you're saved, condemnation is done. The only thing that we have to look forward to is rewards with Christ. 
And there's that benefit and that blessing, but ultimately those rewards, whatever they may be in a detailed sense, they will be a powerful testimony. The shine of those, of those gifts, of those rewards will point to Jesus. And we say, man, I could have never done that by myself. And may it be on that day when we are rewarded for our faithfulness to Jesus Christ and our patience with difficult people called EGRs, extra grace required. With those people, it will be in that moment that it will give praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ. Erwin Lucer finally says that every day is either a loss or a gain as far as eternity is concerned. Here's my question for the Christ followers. Are you being faithful with the life, the talents, the treasures that God has entrusted to you? Have you forgotten what he's done in your life? Has somehow it turned from you and I being a, a rescued sinner who's been made a child of God and who is loved with an unconditional love? Has it somehow morphed from that into our life? The invitation this morning is for you to come back to the Lord, to have that readjustment, to have that repentance. And there, there may be some here today, and you say, Jeff, man, I, I need to begin a relationship with God today. That, that's what needs to happen. I've come to church. I've been interested. He's, he's placed a desire in my heart to learn things that I've never been interested in before. My encouragement to you, if, if that's you, is we're going to have an invitation time, and that's simply a time of response. I'd encourage you to turn to Christ and give Him your life.